about a decade ago, uh, I went on a short-term mission trip to Cambodia. You know, a big part of mission trips and doing mission work is learning as much as you can about a country and its culture, its people. So I had a wonderful time uh, eating good food, visiting their temples. They have a history uh, of Buddhism and so gigantic temple complexes found throughout the country. Uh, even did some great activities with the locals. We helped plant a rice field, uh, which I'm pretty sure uh, the villagers then had to replant because we did such a terrible job of it. Um, one of the sad parts though about the country of Cambodia is it does have a very dark past, one of a terrible, terrible genocide. From the period of 1975 to 1978, the evil regime of the Khmer Rouge wiped out 25%, one-fourth of the country's population, roughly coming out to almost 1.75 to 2 million people killed by this evil regime. If you go visit the capital, Phnom Penh, today, you can find one of the detention centers that was converted from a school known as Tuol Slang, one of the places in which prisoners were brought in and very few came out. An estimated 12,000 prisoners entered into this converted school, Tuol Slang. There were only 12 known survivors to have made it out of that prison. You can visit to all slang today. When you go, the walls of that school still have razor sharp barbed wire up. When you go and walk through its halls, you can still see the torture devices that were used by the captors. You can see pictures of all the people who were captured and imprisoned in to all slang. There's even a cabinet of human skulls some of the people who died in that prison. When you walk into a place where that much evil has occurred, there just really isn't anything you can say. All you feel is utter shock and sadness. You can't help but ponder the atrocities that were committed in those buildings, a place where children used to learn that suddenly became a place of systematic execution of thousands upon thousands in such a short span of time. And you wonder why, why would a country keep a building that has such a sad, despicable history in it? Why would it remain standing? Why would you keep it there? Why would you have skulls in a cabinet? Why would you have the pictures of the dead lining the wall still? Why would you keep torture devices in these rooms? Yet for the Cambodian people, to all slang remains a memorial. A memorial of its grim history and the lessons that had to be learned in light of this terrible, terrible time. As we learn to lament, God has given us throughout Scripture various ways to understand what lament looks like. But there is one whole book in Scripture called Lamentations in which we see a visible, uh, visceral picture of what lament looks like. We're going to be exploring Lamentations over the next couple of weeks. 
And Lamentations is a memorial. It's a memorial for God's people. It's a memorial for us to help us understand and know the sorrow and pain of what God's people have gone through in the past. And it also bears witness to us today, showing us who God is as he reveals himself in our sorrow and in our pain and how we can go to him. Lamentations helps us remain grounded in the reality of the life that we live in, the world that we live in and its brokenness, and it teaches us how to wrestle with our present pain and circumstances, and yet how to move forward in trust in the Lord. So we're going to explore the first two chapters of Lamentations uh, today. First, the first thing Lamentations does, or lament helps us do, is it helps us to see our sin. It helps us to see our sin. The book of Lamentations is attributed to the prophet Jeremiah. And what's interesting is the title of this book in the uh, original language, Hebrew, actually isn't Lamentations. It's the word how. The book is entitled, How? It's the same question that we ask when we face unexplainable tragedy, tragedy, right? You know, when March 2020 hit, and we were told to be in shelter in place. We asked, how did this happen? When the capital was invaded in January, we asked ourselves, how could this happen? How are people getting away with this? How does God allow these things to happen to us? In the book of Lamentations, the context for this overarching question of how is the fall of Jerusalem, God's capital city in 586 BC. Jerusalem, the city on the hill, uh, the, the crown jewel in the land of Canaan, the very place by which God would choose his earthly home and pour forth his blessing to the nations, was sacked and destroyed by the Babylonians. Its walls and gates were torn down. The very temple that sat at the center of the city, the holy place of God, was set on fire and brought to ruins. And all the survivors who managed to stay alive during the siege of the capital were exiled or enslaved by the Babylonian army. It is this this context of utter and complete destruction that we enter into this book of Lamentations. The text itself, not just with the question of a title, how, uh, gives us an idea of how complete this destruction is and how terrible everything was, but even the artful way in which this book, this, this book of prayers and poems is actually written. Because chapter one of Lamentations is an acrostic. What that means is that each verse in Lamentations starts with uh, the, the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so from A to Z, chapter one, chapter one gives us in detail the comprehensive devastation, sorrow, suffering, and pain of Israel as Jerusalem is torn out of their hands and everyone and everything is gone. Chapter one, verse one talks about the ruins that Jerusalem lies in. And it, it uses this analogy of Jerusalem as a widow A princess who once enjoyed the riches of all things is now a slave. And so she weeps and she cries as she knows nothing but loss. 
Verse 4 talks about how the roads, the very roads in which uh, God had promised people would walk toward Jerusalem in order to uh, dwell in her glory, bask in her blessing, those roads now mourn in desolation. Nobody walks on those roads except armies laying siege to Jerusalem. In verses 2 and 6, She's talked about as someone who's been abandoned by her lovers, by those who claim to love and protect her, that they are nowhere to be found. All kinds of abandonment, destruction, suffering. What has caused all this to happen? How could this happen? And the key to explaining a lot of this is verse 5 in chapter 1. The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. And so Jeremiah immediately draws the straight line of Jerusalem's destruction to her disobedience. That it had been her disobedience that led to God overseeing the destruction of Jerusalem. Now I want to take a pause here as we think about lament and suffering and sorrow. And, and make sure that we're very clear about one thing. It's important to state that not every form of suffering in our lives or sorrow or pain in our life is a result of disobedience or is a result of our own sinfulness. When someone suffers because they are evicted by their landlord and the landlord is just greedy and wants to raise rents uh, beyond what's normal, that's not that person's fault. If you suffered abuse as a child, that's not your fault. You are suffering because of the sin of others, not because of sin necessarily you've committed. Even in the Bible, we have examples of people who suffer but are still innocent in the way they suffer. Job, the whole story of Job is about the exploration of someone who suffers personally but is found to be innocent. He, there is, uh, it, it's not because of a consequence of, of some sin that he had committed. Lament as we cry out in the midst of all of this. So whether it's in the moment of sin, we, uh, that is the necessary consequence of uh, suffering, that, that is the necessary consequence of sin we've committed, or sin that is, or suffering that is the consequence of some, something we haven't done. Lament helps us see the bigger picture of the complete, pervasive, comprehensive way sin infects, stains, corrupts, screws up everything from A to Z. Sin is not just an individual thing. It doesn't just in, uh, affect or infect individual souls. It's communal in its destruction. You can imagine that when Jerusalem destroyed, it wasn't that every single person in there was in, uh, disobedient and adulterous toward God. There surely were some upright and obedient Jews in that city. And yet they too were carried off just like the rest of its citizens. You know, as Americans, we're wired to believe that our individual choices only affect us individually. But that's not how sin and evil work. That's not the world we live in. Our own Sin can bring suffering on others and vice versa. It happens all the time. We see it. We experience it every day. This evil, this poison, it lies beneath all our sorrow and pain that we find in this world, whether we cause it or it's caused by others. 
And this is why we need lament. This is why we need to cry out in our pain, as Jeremiah does, as he watches the city that he loves in ruins, and he knows that God is bringing this destruction upon it, that he still cries out and calls upon God and lament because he's seeing the way in which sin has brought forth this destruction. Lament, will, lament forces us to acknowledge this reality in day-to-day life. It helps develop a spiritual sensitivity, not just to ourselves and how wretched we might be, but how broken the world around us really is. It helps us develop empathy to understand how helpless we are and empathy toward those who suffer as well. That's what lament helps us do, to see the all-consuming, the comprehensive and pervasive nature of sin, something that we often turn too much of a blind eye to. Lament also helps us see how God responds to sin. Lament helps us to see God's holiness and his righteousness as he deals with sin. Lamentations 2 helps us kind of get that picture. Lamentations 1 gives us the picture of the destruction and the ruin, almost even telling the news of it. But Lamentations 2 takes that verse 5, the way in which it is God who's afflicted them, and really dives in and focuses in on this. Lamentations 2 is also an acrostic. It's an A to Z poem. Every letter starts with the, uh, every, every verse starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Again, giving this comprehensive picture of God's anger and wrath toward the disobedience of his people, toward sin itself. We see that chapter 2, verse 1, his anger, it covers over them like a cloud. Verse 3, he has withdrawn his right hand. Again, the right hand being a symbol of his protection, of his power, of his care from Israel. He's taken it away from them. Verses 6 and 7, he even allows the destruction of his holy home, the temple. The very place of his presence where he would meet the people of Israel. He allows it to be destroyed. Verses 8 and 9, its walls and its gates are uh, all struck down. They come tumbling down. And again, you see in verse 5, just as in chapter 1, verse 5, a very telling statement. Here in chapter 2, verse 5, another telling statement of how this is the part where Jeremiah explains how he feels. There's what Jeremiah knows, that God is afflicting them. And now Jeremiah says, this is how I feel about all of this as I lament, as I cry out to God. But God, it looks as if you have become like our enemy. That's the conclusion he comes to as he watches and looks and surveys the damage and destruction he, uh, that, that has occurred. And in our own suffering, in our own sorrow, in our moments of pain, isn't that a conclusion some of us come to? Isn't that a place where some of our hearts go? I know my heart has gone to that place before, where it feels that God, who is supposed to be for me and not against me, has become like an enemy to me. God in in, in Jerusalem has ruined that city. He's scattered his people. He's destroyed his own temple. The very place of worship that God gave them directions on how to build to a T, what stones to put, what kind of wood to use, uh, how many cubits and the measurements of everything. 
And now he allows it to be wiped out and destroyed. Why? Why would he bring this destruction upon them? Because they had forgotten God. Israel had forgotten God. They had forgotten his righteousness. They had forgotten his holiness. They enjoyed having the temple. They enjoyed all the, the, uh, all the fame and the glory that comes from having the temple of God, being the city, God, uh, city of God, having these gates and walls. And God in this moment says, you can have those things, but if you do, if you do not have me, it means nothing. And let me show you what nothing truly looks like. Because we are going to take it all away. Because God is jealous for his own glory. He's jealous that people uh, remain obedient and faithful to him. Not to all the things that come with him. He will not tolerate rebellion against him. Even if the trappings look around him look like surface obedience. He knows what's in their heart. God's anger, as we see here in Lamentations, against sin, against disobedience, is so strong that he is willing to destroy and wipe out the city that he loves, the city that he promised to his people, because that's how much he hates sin. That's how much he hates sin. Now, as you think and reflect on that, it makes us ask a couple of key and important questions. Things that we strongly should consider. First is this. You read this passage and you think, wow, God is willing to wipe out a people that he pulled out of Egypt. That he did miracles upon miracles. He saved them from the Egyptian army. He gave them this land that they could live in. Watched them uh, flower and, and, and grow and be blessed and become well known amongst all the nations for their riches and glory. And yet, he's also willing at the same time to wipe them away the moment they start disobeying and rebelling. It makes you wonder, will God do that to me? What if that happens to me? How do I know God won't treat me with that same wrath and anger? That if he's that holy and righteous, if he hates sin that much, I know how much of a mess up I am. How can I live before him? How can I know that this won't happen to me? Well, the reality is the only way we can know, the only way we can know this won't happen to us is if God pours out his wrath, satisfies the demands of justice when his uh, holiness and righteousness is impugned, that there is someone or something that is a substitute for us. It's the only way. Someone else must receive that wrath, must suffer that pain for us if we are to escape it in light of our own sinfulness and our own disobedience and rebellion. Friends, this is who Jesus Christ is. That's why he's our Savior. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, the very curse of disobedience, the curse of sin and death, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
At the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath for our sin so that we can stand holy and righteous before God. That's the amazing work of the cross. Not only does Jesus take, not only is he as our substitute and takes on the wrath of God, he suffers the, the destruction. The same way Jerusalem was wiped out, Jesus was wiped out on the cross for us. But the beautiful part of that too is the exchange that happens. Because it wasn't like once Jerusalem is wiped out, suddenly the people of God are made holy and righteous again. That suddenly everything's okay. But in Christ, as he suffers the wrath of God, he grants us his holiness and righteousness such that we stand before God and we are declared holy and righteous the way Christ is, the way Christ deserves to be. And so in this one act of grace at the cross, both God's justice is established in dealing with sin the way it needs to be dealt with, and at the same time, forgiveness is poured forth for us. This is what godly lament leads to. Lament leads us to the cross. Lament, as we cry out to God, leads us to see what God has done about sin, about suffering, about death. And this is the part that we get confused, right? Because we think about lament as and sadness and sorrow as a mud pit where we just wallow and we get tossed and turned in it and we get dirty and filthy in it and we don't know a way out. But that's not what lament really is. Godly lament is not a mud pit. It's a river. It's a river that flows and leads us to confession, to repentance, to find God and see that in Christ, he has made a way for us to be with him to be saved from our sin. Godly lament helps us to see sin as the cosmic treason that it really is and to take serious God's holiness and his righteousness. It gives us a, a, a spiritual sensitivity to all of what God is doing. And more importantly, it helps us to see what God has done for us. Secondly, the other question, the other reflection you might have in light of seeing this passage and thinking about what that means for us today is, is what, is, what happens here to Jerusalem happening to the United States right now? Is it happening in the world we live in today? COVID, racism, political unrest, are these examples of God's wrath being poured out in the same way? Is God punishing us in the same way that he's punishing Jerusalem? I'd like to say that in one hand, we can absolutely and easily say yes, absolutely, right? God has no problem. We see it here. God has no problem allowing us to go our own way in order for us to see how bad things can really get without him. He has no problem doing that. When we continue to make gods and idols out of country, out of race, out of our own comfort, out of our wealth, then we shouldn't be surprised that when we're handed over to them, things fall apart. They get messy, they get broken, and they get downright evil. But this is a mercy in some ways, because that's how God calls us to his attention. C.S. Lewis writes, God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone 
to rouse a deaf world. And sometimes what that means is that God allows us to enter into that pain, in that suffering, whether it's suffering uh, that you have caused for yourself by your sinfulness, or simply just suffering that is placed upon you by the sin of others. But the point being is that suffering is, is in many ways God's way of calling you to come back to him, to see that he is your only hope and rescue. And so for us to look back on 2020 and to not see and not wake up to the need that we have for God's grace means you probably are spiritually numb to the world around you. So in one sense, we can easily say, yes, everything that we see, all the evil, all the brokenness that we see going around us, it is in very much a way in which God is allowing his wrath to pour forth upon sin. Ways in which things are falling apart the way that we deserve, but also it's in a way how God is calling us back. On the other hand, we also want to be very careful. We don't get to play God. You're not God. I'm not God. And so we have to be careful uh, to not pretend to know his mind. If there's no clear line drawn between uh, a tragic circumstance to a specific person or event, then we need to be careful not to draw those lines for God. And there's wisdom in that. You know, uh, you hear this a lot where this particular event happens because the wrath of God is being poured out upon these people for this particular sin. And the reality is, is we often don't actually know what that looks like. And when we do, what we're really trying to do is play God ourselves. We, the fact is, is people who do this, we love doing this because we want to demonize others. When we do that, we're demonizing others so that we can make ourselves feel better about ourselves so we can say, look, I'm, I might be bad, but I'm not that bad. I'm not, they deserve the wrath of God bad. But in doing that, we are diminishing the pervasive power of sin. We are diminishing the fact that sin is everywhere. It's affecting everything, right? And it also then, if we don't see that, then we're not going to see our real need for Jesus Christ. We're going to continue to depend on our own holiness, our own righteousness, our own ability to be good by ourselves. You know, over the past year, we've heard so much. You, you, you just can't help. You, whether you, you go on the news on TV, you read a magazine, you look on Twitter, it's just noise, right? A lot of shouting, a lot of vitriol, a lot of anger, a lot of blame thrown in every direction. Reasons why this, this, and this are wrong is because of this person, that person, and these things. And it's just constant bluster. And sadly enough, the church in a lot of ways has, if anything, contributed to that bluster. You know what we're not seeing a lot of? We're not seeing a lot of this on Twitter. We're not seeing a lot of this on TV. And frankly, we're not probably seeing a lot of it in churches the way we should. We're not seeing a lot of lament. We're not hearing a lot of prayer about uh, a country being torn apart by a virus, by racism, by political division. We're not seeing enough a lament that is leading us to confess not just the sins of a nation, not to confess the sins of those people over there, but my own sin, the way in which I've contributed to these issues, whether it's racism or political divides or whatever, how I am just as guilty in many ways of why this country is falling apart. 
how lament leads me to repent of those things. Lament, properly done, will call me and call all of us to draw near, not to halls of power and influence, not to hope in social programs or political programs, but to hope in God and God alone, because only Christ can save us from this. Only God can save us. That's the picture of Lamentations. That's what this whole thing that happens in the first two chapters. Jeremiah is saying, look, God, why is this happening? But more importantly, God, come save us. And we're going to see that over the next couple of chapters as we explore those. The way in which Jeremiah makes that turn and says, God, you have put us in this position, but God, you're the only one who can save us. So save us now. Lament will direct us in this time on this other side of the cross, to see Jesus as the only safe harbor from God's wrath against sin and injustice. And so as we've entered into this time of Lent, especially during this church calendar, we have now for 40 days a time for reflection, for repentance, and for renewal. And so for the time of Lent, let's make it a time of lament, a time of prayer, a time of calling out to God to rescue us, to save us, a time in which we explore our own hearts and allow God to do heart surgery and help us to see our own sinfulness, the ways in which we are the problem and the way in which we need Christ or the way in which we're suffering and the way that we have sorrow and the way in which we need Christ to heal us. Maybe you're in that place today of sorrow, of deep sorrow and pain, of going through a lot of things right now. I want to encourage you, call out to God. Call out to him. Tell him how you feel. Lament before him. Let your prayer lead you to Jesus. Or maybe you're in a spiritually numb place. You're apathetic. You're not feeling anything. Then let me tell you today, wake up. Wake up. How much worse must it get? How much worse must it get? And I'm not talking about the country. I'm talking about for you. How bad does it need to be before you call out to God? Friend, today is the day. Call out to the Lord. Lament for your sin, for your brokenness, for your sorrow, and for your pain. And look to God that he might come and he might restore you with the love of Christ, our Savior who went to the cross for you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, are heartbroken and we ask the question of how, Lord, how can we possibly live, continue to live in a world like this? How do we make sense of the evil and the suffering and the pain all around us how lord do i deal with my own sinfulness the way in which i constantly rebel against you and desire to do my own thing even though it leads to my own destruction father i long i long to be healed i long for our country to be healed i long for our world to be healed and your promise to us in your word is that there will be a day when the new heavens and the new earth will descend. Christ will return and all tears will be wiped away from our eyes. All things will be made new. 
and that we know that, Father, this is promised to us, it's a guarantee to us because of the death of Christ and his resurrection, which shows us that there is hope. There is hope beyond this time of struggle, of sorrow, and of pain. Father, lead my heart to regularly confess and repent. Lead all of us to come to you and lean upon you and look for you and know that you are a holy, you are a just, and you are a righteous God, and you will not stand for sin and impurity before your presence. And we thank you that we can only stand in your presence because Jesus suffered for our sin and impurity on the cross. We praise and thank you that, God, we can worship you and know you in this special and amazing way because of your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> yeah. Our confession of sin is from Psalm 32, verses 3 and through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Godly lament always leads us to confess our own sin and to recognize the fallen nature of the world around us. Genuine empathy and sensitivity of this will lead us to call out to God for help. It's the natural response once we do that. And so this time of confession in our service is an opportunity to exercise that, to lament for our sinfulness and confess all of these things to God and then also a chance to call out to him, to come, to rescue us in Jesus. And he promises to do so. So let's take a moment in silent prayer and, and confession to do that right now. The assurance that God has forgiven you, has met you in your uh, weakness and in your sin. Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. God has saved us from his holy and righteous wrath by placing it upon Jesus on the cross by his sacrifice. We can stand now forgiven, and God sees our sins no more. This is where our true blessedness comes from. This is where we find any and all blessing, to be able to stand before God without fear of judgment, but to be called beloved by him, to be sons and daughters of him. That's the beauty of forgiveness and the beauty of the cross. So let's worship and let's rejoice in that truth now. <coughs> about to have a coughing fit too. Right. 